Programming Throwdown, episode 66, Code Reviews. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone. This is our uh, double for this month because uh, of my illness last month. Um, and one thing I did uh, last month, uh, even though I was quite sick, I was able to assemble a 3D printer, which was actually super, super fun. Um, I went on uh, GearBest, uh, which is some Chinese distributor, and I ordered a uh, 3D printer kit. Um, it was literally just bags of screws <laughs> and wires and, and rods and, and a, like this thing that had been cut out of acrylic, like a bunch of little acrylic pieces um, and some stepper motors that you could have got just right off the shelf at Fry's or something. <clears throat> um, but, you know, it, it came with the whole kit. Um, and uh, it was very daunting. I mean, the thing that scared me the most was... At one point, I pulled out of the box like a 120 volt like plug that would plug into the wall, and the other end was just three bare wires. Um, Don't stick them to your tongue. <laughs> yeah, and I just thought, I mean, I'm not one of the people that like put paper clips in the sockets when I was younger or something. Um, and so that whole like, you know, the, everything related to like electrical work, uh, I just have no familiarity with. Um, but I just dove in. I knew that there were going to be a lot of good resources, and there are just an incredible amount of resources on, on how to do it. There's tons of videos from different angles, different people doing it. And uh, I built it, and it actually worked. Um, it was a little bit scary. Uh, the first time I turned it on, smoke started pouring out. Oh, no. Um, and basically, uh, I had some of the copper strands of the 120 volt had uh, um, like uh, touched each other and completed a circuit and like melted... Uh, part of the of the of the thing but it was okay the part it melted wasn't a big deal that doesn't sound um, okay <laughs> yeah it was it was super scary i was pretty sure i destroyed it i got extremely lucky um part of it too is as soon as i saw a bit of smoke i unplugged it um and uh uh yeah so that was the first issue the second issue was uh the way it works if you've never seen a 3d printer um you have two stepper motors and you have these two cables that make uh, one makes the platform go towards you and away from you, and one makes the printer head go to the left and to the right. Um, but the part that makes the printer head go up and down, that needs to be very, very accurate. And so you can't have just a plastic cable for that. Um, also, you know, gravity is constantly putting tension on it. So for that, they have these two wire, uh, these two metal rods that are threaded, kind of like a screw, but but you know, you're not screwing it into anything. It's just it's just two cylinders that have a thread. And they, they plug into two stepper motors, and they both turn kind of uh, in sync. Um, and, uh, and so the idea is when you turn both of these screws together, it kind of makes this whole kind of platform rise up. And when you turn them the other way, it makes, them ru- makes it rise down. Um, and I guess those rods uh, needed some WD-40 or some grease or something. Um, and so I didn't do that. Um, and, uh, you know, like there's just like the friction was causing everything to get messed up. It wasn't, you know, the left and the right side weren't rising up the same. Um, so there's basically long story short, there were several times where I felt like I was out the $220 and I felt like it was just, uh, like, you know, I tried it, I, it's, it's ruined, you know, whatever, you know, I, I kind of like, I felt kind of bad about it cause I wasted the money, um, uh, but then in the end, I finally got it to work. It was just super, super satisfying. So what have you been um, making? Yeah, so 
I printed a couple of things just to make uh, just like some functional things. Um, like I printed something to hold my watch, um, like on the dresser and things like that. I also, I had this crazy idea that I've had for a while and I finally got to implement it. Um, I went on Thingiverse and I found models of lions and bears and other animals. And at first I 3D printed them and my son got to play with them and he thought it was super cool. Um, and then I actually went in Blender, which is a 3D editing software, and I sort of detached the head. I decapitated all of these animals. <laughs> and then I made the head a screw and the body like a thread. And so you can actually screw off the lion head and screw it onto a bear body. Um, I did it kind of haphazardly. So when you screw the head on, it doesn't screw on straight. So all the animals look like they're kind of turning their head, wondering, like they're all looking over their shoulder. <laughs> but it's still really fun. And, and my son and I, we got a huge kick out of it. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it was great. I highly recommend doing it, especially if you're um, like... Uh, in high school or college, or if you don't have a lot of experience with electrical stuff, this is a great way to get started. It was something that actually worked, which is for me and mechanical things, that was a rarity. Well, except for that part where you almost burned your house down. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be when really careful work, of AC mains voltage out of your wall. It's no joke. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, uh, I was pretty sure that I was going to destroy something like fundamental in my house. Um, and I was pretty close to doing that. <laughs> All right. Uh, don't do this without supervision. If you're, uh, if you're in high school or something, have your dad help you or your mom help you or, or have a friend over, someone who could put it out with a fire extinguisher <laughs> or something. Words of endorsement from Jason. <laughs> All right. Well, time for the news. My first link is the Competitive Programmer's Handbook. Uh, this is a PDF compiled by someone named Anti or... Yeah, yes, Anti, and I won't attempt the last name, who compiled a whole bunch of tips and tricks and algorithms for the kinds of things you would need to be able to do if you wanted to do competitive programming. Now, you may say, well, competitive programming is starting a company and competing against all the other people starting a company in order to do better. <laughs> but competitive programming, uh, I, I think in this context, refers to uh, programming competitions where a bunch of uh, programmers gather together and get assigned puzzles and problems and a time limit in which to solve them. And the sort of fastest to be able to solve, roughly to solve the problems is uh, the winner. And there's a sort of points, sometimes based on the difficulty of the problems, the exact structure of the competition can vary. But sometimes, I, I think I did a couple of these when I did my um, computer science stuff in high school. I think like my senior year maybe, but I think most yep. of people get experience with this in college. Um, the ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery, runs a really big programming competition each year. And yeah, I mean uh, the the thing to the thing to keep in mind is that like there's sort of this like uh, family of people who compete and then grow up and like grow older and become judges and then become problem writers. And so you know it means that there's like a specific niche of computer science that's gonna cover like 90% of the problems that you see in competitive programming. And so even if you, you might be a super strong CS student, but you also have to study the competitive programming world because it dives really deep into a handful of areas and doesn't cover other ones. So, Right. So, and, and sometimes the, pro, the 
the problems can be quite tricky. The sort of most obvious solution will definitely not work. And you need to understand sort of why it won't work and figure out what, they, what the trick is to it. Uh, and in that way, it becomes a puzzle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I also, I did a bunch of these programming competitions in college. Um, I think it's great. It's great experience. Um, um, but uh, yeah, as I said, there's sort of this hidden like gnosis um, around it. And, uh, and uh, so it's very, really important to study. So, and this is actually a great resource because it really covers it in a lot of detail. Um, and it's, uh, it's a great way to kind of get familiar. And a lot of the interview questions at companies, you know, kind of are modeled after competitive programming assignments because mostly because of the time limit. You know, like you have maybe an hour to solve a problem in a competitive situation and you have an hour or even half an hour to solve a problem in an interview. And so they kind of end up converging a little bit there. So this would also help, you know, your interview skills. Yeah. And I think also just becoming comfortable with a lot of the algorithms that are necessary for the programming competitions are really helpful for the interviews as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, like for the reasons you said, the, the kind of depth you get into is about the same between the two because you just don't have much time to kind of write well-architected code per se. It's mostly about sort of getting to the coding the algorithm. Um, but I will say most of the things in this book, uh, sort of especially the later half, are things like they would be awesome to understand and to do well in programming competitions are probably needed, but you would be unlikely to encounter these on a programming interview unless it was a really tough interviewer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of... I would actually be surprised to even find really any dynamic programming and things like that in an interview. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are like super advanced things. But definitely a great resource. And if you're interested in uh, or are currently doing uh, programming competitions, check it out. Also, we do recommend, um, oh, I forget the name of the other one, but Top Coder is a website that has uh, programming competitions. Yep. And there's also... And uh, HackerRank uh, is yes. another one. And and so those are also good resources to gain practice, apply the knowledge you learn from this book, uh, that kind of stuff, but also to prepare for programming interviews. We get that question a lot from listeners. So, Yeah, I actually, I helped someone about a month or two ago. Um, and you know he asked me for help interviewing um, at a company I used to work at. And I told him, I said, let's just you know open up HackerRank and start solving problems. And uh, I, I still think that's that's the best way to uh, go about it. And if if you don't have a lot of experience with competitive programming, then chances are, um, even if you're really good at CS, um, you're gonna have a hard time with something like HackerRank, which is which is kind of the point. Like uh, it's good to see, um, you know, what sort of knowledge gaps there are, and and uh, there's great documentation. Most of the these sites give you the answer along with an editorial and things like that. So. Cool. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, C++ 17. Uh, and so we'll give a link to it. Um, a lot of new features, um, a lot of cool stuff coming out. It's amazing because I remember C++ uh, 11 being just super, super delayed mm -hmm. and having to rely heavily on boost. Like if you wanted even just threading, you had to use boost. Um, and uh, I think C++ 11 was originally supposed to be C++ 08, if I remember correctly. Um, we could probably find out from our old episode. Um, it took till, till 11 to get it out the door. But now here we are with a 14 and a 17. Um, and uh, it's actually almost you know, getting to the point where unless you're really heavy in a C++, you can start to lose track of the latest features. Um, but yeah, there's some really cool stuff uh, here. And we've provided a link so you can kind of check it out, like the latest and the greatest C++ stuff. 
I feel like we should enter into a segment where we discuss our favorite feature from the new. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I mean, the one I use the most, I mean, this is covering all of the extensions is the uh, um, totally, uh, I I totally forgot. Uh, I think it's called the range operator. Basically, it's where you do comprehension. Is that what it is? It's where you do like four X colon vector. And and then it it saves you from having to write the whole for loop. I I call it list comprehension, um, but I don't know if that's yeah. The there's right there's term. a bunch. Of, I, I I think I know it's that call that in other it, yeah. languages. Yeah, that and the threading, like going from boost threading to just a C plus plus threading, it's literally just changing. It's a regex, right? But I had a bunch of code and still have now. I'm producing a bunch of code that uses threads, and it's good that that's just baked into the language because you know it's so important. Um, the other thing from C++ 17 is, that's nice is they're continuing to support sort of extra features in the const expressions. So if you write a lot of const expressions, which can be can be compiled time evaluated, um, before it was very strict what could be in them, um, and now there's increasing um, things that are added to the list of what can be in them, which is good. Cool. Yeah, doing more like uh, type inferencing. So my next news article is called Simple Chess AI. This is an article that was posted on, I guess, somebody's Medium platform, uh, Free Code Camp. Anyways, we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, and I came across this, but it was really interesting because a lot of people, well, you know, of course, artificial intelligence is in the news a lot, and it means lots of different things to lots of different people. Um, so I, didn't, I don't think there's any neural networks, or there are no neural networks in this uh, example, but they basically mm-hmm. take a kind of minimal JavaScript implementation of, a, of playing chess and have it already set up for you to kind of plug and play your uh, sort of move evaluator, the uh, opposing player, the computer player. And I thought it was really cool because I've always, you know, thought to myself, like, oh, I should make a, you know, chess bot or something that plays chess. But then it's always like the setting up a representation for the board and having a visualizer. It's a lot of work to get to the thing you're trying to do. And so I thought this was a particularly compact setup. I probably could have gone and found you know, something at some point if I had been serious about it. Um, but it comes along with the tutorial where they take you first amount, you know, j- simply being able to make valid moves, then being able to, uh, you know, talk about what the tree of possible moves would look like and how to evaluate that. And then how to prune that tree so that you can go farther down the tree, which means in this case, farther down the tree is further into the future of potential moves. And that way, the more you can trim as these paths aren't good, then the farther down you can go, the farther in the future can look and the more sort of um, predictive your engine becomes and uh, being able to be a little more strategic than just uh, tactical. Uh, And then, you know, sort of how do you have heuristics for the relative point values of the pieces or what about different pieces are more or less important depending on where they are on the board and how do you sort of encode that? It goes through a lot of it, actually. Um, I mean, I'm not a great chess player, so I'm pretty sure that... AI that ends up by the end could probably beat me pretty handily. Um, but I thought this is a very kind of interesting introduction to how to do sort of game AI. Yeah, totally. I mean, even just a player, like a simple heuristic like this with an eight move look ahead will make an expert player that would beat almost everyone who's not a competitive player. Yeah, chess is hard. <laughs> yeah, chess is a hard game to play. But Go is harder, so... That's right. I guess we should really be upping the limit here in, in writing simple Go AIs. That's that's hard to do. Um, yeah, the thing about chess is you can, you know, even eight moves ahead or six moves ahead, you can exhaust all the possible actions with this pruning in mind. 
Um, but with Go, I mean, you know, at every board state, you have hundreds of actions. Yeah, the branching factor is much higher. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we'll put that in the show notes. Cool. Uh, check it out if it sounds interesting. Yeah, this looks awesome. I mean, it's as as Patrick said, step by step. So so there's there's nothing stopping you from uh, from from coding this up yourself um, and reading just by following this tutorial and having some understanding of like a Python or C plus plus or something like that. I know another Very classic cool. example people do are make the worst possible chess AI. So make an AI that loses as fast as possible. Oh, really? Did you see the uh, worst Overwatch player article? No. So basically, I mean, it's a little bit of a tangent, but uh, um, Overwatch had a formula. It's probably some variant of ELO or something to to decide people's rank. Um, but it, it's a it's a formula. It's not like uh, the top 10 people, top 10% of people are rank one, so on and so forth, right? It's not like that. Um, and so uh, there is the worst, I think the worst rank is rank one. So I think one is, is the lowest. Um, and there's a person who he made it his personal mission to get to rank one. Um, and, and people had thought it wasn't even possible. And uh, he basically, you know, he, he actually like walks through, like in the beginning, He's playing with pretty competitive people because I guess originally, like initially he was really good. And the people were like pretty mature and and, and nice and, and you know, he was losing all these games. Um, and then he got to like the middle. And when he got to about a little worse than average, the people became trolls. So basically like all the trolls are the people who are like slightly worse than average. That's like where most of the trolls are. And then when you get even worse, it's a lot of bots. It's people who are have just written scripts to play the game or not even play the game, participate in the game so that they can get the loot afterwards. And he had to like lose the bots, which is really hard <laughs> to do. So he spent a, a ton of time like trying to force himself to lose. And he did eventually get to rank one, but it's it's a really cool story. But isn't that sort of a that describe that hierarchy? That's I guess I've been on the bad end of that, which is coming into a game, not when it first comes out, but you know, after a little while and people have been talking about it, and I sort of say, I'll check this out. But of course, you come into it as sort of a worse than average player, you know, hopefully. And uh, yeah. then what happens is you start playing and you're sort of playing with the people, like you said, who are the trolls who just go from game to game or whatever and like being the worst. And there may really be a good community above that, but you never really get to experience it because you can easily get turned off of the game by the kind of bad experience at the low level. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a real problem. Um, it's just hard to know how to solve that. But yeah, that's... Um, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the way to solve it is to have some kind of hybrid game where, you know, uh, you could have a mix of good and bad players and the bad players don't ruin the game for the good ones. Mm. But that's, I mean, that's, you'd have to design the whole game around that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, but, uh, in the meantime, <clears throat> in the meantime, you can tell if you're really in a slump in a game because people start, Troll you know, you. Yeah, becoming really rude. When when people become really rude to me in Rocket League, I know that I've, I'm on a big losing streak. <laughs> um, so my article is actually, uh, so a security enthusiast found the kill switch for the WannaCry um, ransomware. And I'll kind of cover all of this. Um, and I don't have all the details. Actually, Patrick, you probably know a lot more than me on this. But uh, WannaCry is this... Uh, it's some kind of Trojan or virus, but uh, basically it takes over your computer and then you have to pay 
you know, uh, Bitcoin, like anonymous money to an anonymous source to get your computer back. Um, and uh, it spreads through some way that I, I haven't looked into. I'm assuming it's some kind of maybe over email or Facebook or something. And uh, um, the thing about it is, I guess when the person was testing it, uh, or maybe just as a, as a, as a kill switch for, for themselves or, or what have you, um, there's a certain domain name. And it's like, it's a nonsensical name. It's www. and then a bunch of characters.com. And they, he would send a request to that domain name, uh, a web request. And if it came back with a certain response, then the virus didn't activate. So even though you had the virus on your computer, it wasn't doing anything. Um, if he sends a request to this domain and he doesn't get anything back, then the virus kicks in, like it locks your computer down. Uh, it also tries to spread the virus, so on and so forth. And uh, somebody who was looking at the virus, uh, you know, decompiling the virus uh, executable, uh, found this 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 logic. And so he went ahead and registered that domain, which is by itself surprising. Like if you were a hacker, why wouldn't you register this domain already, right? But I guess maybe that would incriminate you. But uh, this person registered that domain and he had it return the appropriate result. He, he built his own web server that did that. And he basically stopped this virus, which is remarkable. Yeah, it's still unclear why the stuff had that kill switch in it, like why it was doing that. There's like a lot of speculation. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I guess the, uh, the person who did it originally wasn't sure what would happen because you know, code's complicated, but he, he did it as an right. experiment and noticed it. Sure enough, it stopped the code from work. Like it stopped the virus from installing itself, from uh, ransoming, from encrypting the computer and, and putting up the ransom message. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the only thing I could think of is, you know, it's very hard to sort of test viruses. That would be my guess, because even if you're in some kind of virtual machine, you probably have to log in with some kind of credentials and and especially when you get to testing it on on you know other machines and it probably wrote this as a way to keep from uh, accidentally locking themselves out of their own computer um, but yeah I mean I guess for whatever reason they chose or, or maybe just forgot and they didn't take it out and and uh, um, saved a lot of people a huge headache I wonder how many people have attempted to write ransomware and ransom to their own computer yeah <laughs> I know right uh, my guess is probably not that many. No, I mean, you have to be I pretty mean, skilled, so you probably know to be really careful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like the virtual machine can emulate things so well that there's not really a reason to do it. But, I mean, it could be the kind of thing where, you know, yeah, if you're careless even once, you're totally hosed. Or maybe you just pay yourself a Bitcoin and it doesn't matter. Oh, <laughs> there you go. That's true. Until that code's not working right and then... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I always wondered, it's like, do the worms and viruses like are they pretty well tested or not really because like if it's not well tested you have a problem like because it sort of gets out and then people will patch their systems and you may not accomplish the goal you want because you have unintended consequences or takes down your server that's supposed to be doing whatever um but then if you test it really 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 well like do you really care if 10 percent of people's computer crash instead of doing what you want right yeah i mean it's at the end of the day it doesn't matter uh, well, but then it actually gets back to our chess AI example, like the branching factor becomes really, really important. And so mm. even if 1% of people uh, don't spread the virus, it ends up having a huge impact. So yeah, my guess is probably they're tested pretty well. Um, 
But, but I, the, I the think different than, really like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I want to say it's sort of different though. As we, well, I get off on a tangent, but it doesn't matter the order of people being infected per se. Like if, if oh, you don't true. spread it to me, but Bob spreads it to me, that's just as bad for me. Like, I don't care that it came from you or Bob. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the question there is then like, what uh, is the density of that graph? Um, like if, if I don't spread it to you, what are the chances someone else is going to know you or mm, something like that? Mm. But yeah, I mean, actually, the real thing I'm curious about is who are these people? I think in general, it's usually state-sponsored. Like it's it's uh, government programs of various countries well, that that are doing this. Well, I think Microsoft came out, if I recall, because it was you know it, it was on Windows and came out and said that this was a result of um, I think one of the WikiLeaks or something that revealed the cache of hacker tools that were used. Um, oh, the NSA they, thing yeah, we talked about. We actually talked about that like two shows ago. Yeah, and they found like that apparently whatever this flaw was found in there. And so people like exploited it to make this. Or at least that was the accusation. I, I don't know enough and didn't read enough about it to know if that was sort of proved out or accurate. But Gotcha. Yeah, I read something. Uh, yeah, I read something along those lines. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, I guess the, that uh, those leaked tools were legit. <laughs> Maybe not from the NSA or whatever, but at least they were... Uh, it's definitely, there are powerful tools. There's no doubt about that. Time for a cool. book of the show. Book of the show. My book of the show is very limited time. So uh, definitely jump on this. Um, let me see how many days are left. Uh, uh, there's probably, by the time the show publishes, there'll be about a week left. So um, jump on this quickly. It's the uh, Humble Bundle for, uh, for make, make Essentials, for Maker Fair. So basically, uh, um, it's just a ton of books about building stuff. So there's books all about getting started with 3D printing that I probably should have read before I burned my house down. Um, there's books about, you know, designing a good workspace, um, how to make 3D models that you can then print. Um, there's all sorts of like electrical, uh, you know, like uh, uh, robotics, like build your own robot kind of thing, microcontrollers, Linux. And uh, you can get a ton of books uh, you can actually get a ton of books for a dollar total. Um, if you pay $8, you get twice as many. And if you pay 15, you get three times as many, uh, books. Um, but yeah, definitely check it out. It's an amazing deal. All of these humble book deals are phenomenal. I just still have problems. Like, I guess eBooks have never really clicked with me. I've re- read a couple, but I get too distracted. Oh yeah. I, uh, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about it. Like my the fiction ebooks, I've definitely read a bunch of. As far as like ebook references, um, yeah, you're right. You know, I have I have a decent amount of ebook references, but uh, um, I don't read them read them too much. But maybe it's just I don't read reference books. Yeah, that's fair. That much, fair. You know, unless I'm really stuck. Well, my book is a massive tome of fiction called "The Way of Kings" by Brandon Sanderson, and this is book one of the Stormlight archive which is if i've previously recommended the mistborn series um and it turns out i didn't actually know this at first but the way of kings is apparently in the same book literary universe i don't know how you say that so it's not sort of the books don't at least as far as i i know don't really have anything to do with each other but they exist in sort of the same ecosystem of stuff that brandon sanderson calls the cosmere universe so i don't know so the there's sort of magic in the books and the magic isn't the same as that from Mistborn, but it kind of is similar in a way. Um, there's also another book called Elantris that is apparently also set in this sort of Cosmere mythos. 
And um, the, but but all that's to say that it's by Brandon Sanderson, who I've recommended several times, and I think he does a really good job of writing. This book is very long. Um, I actually I don't know how long it is in pages because I listened to it. Um, but uh, the the listening to it, I believe it was. Oh, I should have looked it up right before I did this. But I think it's um, like thirty hours. I want to say or oh, something wow. like that. So it's definitely lengthy. Oh, no, I was completely wrong. It's 45 hours, for almost 46 hours. Well, it's like four times the size of a normal book. 46 hours, yeah. Uh, so it's definitely a big book. Let's see if I can figure out how, how big the hardcover is. Um, so it's 46 hours, very long, but I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, I have a bunch of other books, and I wanted to go get the second book just because I was so into it. But I was like, after I've been burned before. After listening to like 45 hours straight, to go into another 45-hour book, it you kind of get a little burnt out by the end. And so it's best it's to sort of... 1,280 pages. Ah, oh, yeah, big. Um, but I definitely recommend it. If you're into long-form fiction, at least, if you do mostly sort of short stuff, maybe this is not the best first book because uh, yeah. it's quite long. But if you like sort of long... I actually like really long-form science fiction and fantasy. Um, I'm in the middle of another very long book by uh, Neil Stevenson and... Uh, I'm enjoying it, although this one is starting to drag, so I'm not sure. Maybe I need to go on to a short book kick. But anyways, The Way of Kings. I know I didn't say anything about what it is because I never know how to talk about stuff without spoiling it. Um, so yep, totally makes sense. check it out. It's a fantasy book. I guess I mentioned there's some magic. That's good. I could read like the, the back page, but you could just do that for yourself on the internet. But if you like, ben, Brian's, ugh, if you like Brandon Sanderson or you like fantasy, and you have probably already checked it out because the book is like five years old, I think, at this point. Um, but if you haven't, I give it my recommendation. Very cool. And you can uh, listen to that book on Audible. And yep. uh, Audible is also a sponsor of Programming Throwdown. You can go to audibletrial.com slash programmingthrowdown and uh, you know sign up. You get a month free. You get a free book, and uh, if you use that special URL, then uh, you help out the podcast. And I will say 46 hours seems to be a good value for me <laughs> for that yeah. Audible credit. $15 for 46 hours. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm actually reading a book. I won't spoil it, uh, but I'm about a third of the way done. Um, and I actually read some books that Patrick had recommended in the past on Audible since I got my account. I read uh, Zero to One. Um and a couple other books, and uh, I think it's great. I've actually switched over to that. I can kind of rest my eyes when I'm on the shuttle. And nice. uh, so, do you go back and uh, do you go back to the old yeah. show notes and look at my recommendations? And then I didn't know you were I doing did. this. I feel complimented. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. Have I been a good recommender? You have. Well, you know, I've, I've read some of your recommendations already, just on ebook. Um, but yeah, I picked up some of the ones that you recommended that I hadn't already read and got them on Audible. But yeah, in general, I, I like your recommendation. I'm not into into sci-fi, so I don't oh, okay. usually okay. Uh, read the fiction books. But uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, I feel like your recommendations are solid. It's super interesting. Um, we're also on Patreon, so you can go Patreon.com/slash/programmingthrowdown. Um, you can give us a shout out, send us a message. Um, you can also uh, uh, set up a donation, like uh, become a Patreon to Programming Throwdown. We really appreciate that. Um, at the end of the year, every year, we take any money left over after our server costs and everything else, and we give out free T-shirts to people who are subscribers. Um, and uh, yeah, check it out. We also publish uh, a separate RSS feed there that has a bit more bandwidth. So if you're a subscriber, um, you can use that RSS feed. Yep. Time for Tool of the Show. 
Okay, so my tool of show has a bit of backstory. Um, while I was buying this 3D printer from China, I also noticed China has a bunch of other stuff for sale that is super cheap. You fell down and, a rabbit uh, hole. Yes, it is a rabbit hole. And I bought a tablet. I've been wanting this for a long time. I've been wanting a gigantic tablet. Um, I wanted a tablet so big that I could read an eight and a half by 11 uh, research paper, you know, at scale. That was the goal. Uh, but I don't want to spend a lot of money. I could get like an iPad Pro, but I think it's like $1,200 or something for the big one. Or maybe it's like $1,000, but it's still a lot of money. So uh, a Chinese, uh, uh, you know, drop shipper was shipping a 12-inch uh, Android tablet. Um, it actually runs Android and Windows. What? Huh? Um, it dual boots. Yeah, isn't that wild? Um, when it starts up, it has uh, use the volume up and volume down button to choose whether you want Windows or Android. <laughs> Whichever you're feeling and, that uh, day. Yeah. And it's amazing. Unfreaking believable. And it was only $200. Oh, wow. For this huge tablet, this beautiful screen. Um, the only catch, um, it runs a fork of Android. And if you just put stock Android on it, um, the touchscreen doesn't work. Uh, I, I saw that oh, from reading boy. the internet. So, so I have to leave the version of Android on, and it also has Chinese spyware. <laughs> so Jeez. it had this thing called AdUps that is that that uh, I've read on the internet. Uh, I haven't verified, but according to the internet, it like logs your your keystrokes, like your your uh, keyboard touches. Um, so uh, when I found that out, uh, I was super bummed. I thought I had this paperweight. Or at least I was going to have to highly regulate my usage. Um, but then I found this app called, uh, this program called DeepLoader. Um, so you run this on your desktop with with an Android device plugged in. And even the, um, the, the factory level services, you can turn them off. You can't uninstall them because you don't have root access, but you can disable them. Um, you can disable their connection to the internet. You can turn them off entirely. And so uh, I ran this DeepLoader. And I turned off add-ups on uh, my tablet. And the other thing I found out is um, a lot of these lesser-named brands, like the BLU, uh, Blue Android Phones, um, and some of these other Chinese brands, which have sold just millions and millions of devices in the U.S., have this spyware on them. Oh. Um, and so if you have, uh, you know, if you have one of the major ones, like if you have a Motorola or a Samsung, you're fine. But if you bought, you know, either for yourself or for your family, one of these like other brands like Blue or, or uh, uh, Chewy or one of these Chinese brands, then uh, run this deep loader. Or even if you didn't, run the deep loader. And, and, uh, and I think all Verizon phones also have some type of logging system um, that it doesn't log keystrokes. Like it's not that invasive, but you could, you could disable it with this program. So have you been reading research papers on your gigantic tablet? I have. Yeah, it's actually, it's really nice. Um, I have an app called uh, Moon Reader. It's uh, kind of expensive. It's like five bucks for a PDF reader. So you know, it seems kind of like a waste, but it's amazing. It lets you uh, annotate on the PDF pretty easily. Um, it'll actually switch to night mode um, and it'll invert the colors of the PDF. Like even the pictures, the colors will be kind of inverted Ooh. and... It, yeah, it makes the pictures kind of strange, but for a research paper where you're really just looking at graphs, it's okay. Um, and it uh, makes it much easier on their eyes and everything. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really nice. My tool of the show, predictably, is an iPhone app. I don't actually think 
Well, I, uh, I, I should say an iOS app because I, I know it's on the iPad as well, but I don't, it didn't look like it was available, at least not yet, for Android devices. Um, and this is Card Thief. This is by the same um, person, company, that created Card Crawl, which I think I've recommended before. Uh, if not, it's also a, a cool game to check out. I think it's a couple dollars. And Card Thief is a strategic card game. Oh, no, it does say it's on Android. Okay, cool. Yep, it I just looked it up. Play. It's on Android. All right, cool. Uh, I feel bad. I didn't want to leave those people out. Uh, anyway, so this this is a strategic card game where you are sort of a thief sneaking around buildings, trying to avoid lights and guards, and trying to get to the exit, all while sort of managing um, your stats so that you can get uh, good scores, pick up loot, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I thought it's just, it's sort of fun to see a card game that, I, I have several implementations of real card games that I've played, but it's interesting to see people playing simulating playing a real card game but in a way where it'd be like this card game would never exist in real life because it'd be too tedious or you know too much bookkeeping that no one would ever really want to play it um and I, it's just sort of an oh, interesting, interesting genre and anyways uh, yeah check out card thief there's other games as well that i play where i didn't like the idea of it in a real board game where i'd played things similar and just like sort of the tediousness of it made it not interesting to me but then playing on the iPad, you can sort of sit down and it like shuffles for you. Um, it keeps track of all of your statistics. It makes sure you don't sort of break the rules by accident. So some games that are really fun, but sometimes are sort of easy to mess up or make great iPad or, well, I mean, just great app implementations. Yeah, totally. Yeah, especially like Agricola and these games that have just so much going on. It's so much more fun on the iPad. But it's so fun to move all those bits of wood around in Agricola. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the app doesn't do it for me. I don't know why. It's just like I, I love moving the little bits around, but it does make it hard to get to the table. I actually think, I think, uh, yeah, if I just had an app that where I could take a picture of the board at the end and it would uh, calculate the go. score, that's all I really need. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Cool. Well, time to talk about code reviews. This is going to be an exciting and most thrilling topic ever. <laughs> no, I this is, I, I think the interesting thing about this is, uh, you know, if we talk about, let's say, Python, um, you're going to learn it in college or maybe even in high school. Um, and you, you're going to go into your first software engineer job, probably already knowing Python. But this is something that, like, it's a chicken and an egg. Like, you can't really know it until you've done it um, or until, you know, someone kind of covers the whole process. And, and a lot of colleges, um, you know, we had, a, we had a college course called Software Architecture, um, and it was, you know, it really should have covered things like code reviews, but it didn't. Um, so we, we actually didn't really get a taste for, you know, code reviews and merging and releasing code and these things until we got into industry. And so hopefully Patrick and I are going to change that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I knew it existed, but, you know, anyways, I, I didn't really know what it was. And it's actually surprising to me. A lot of people kind of a lot of companies don't have good code review systems or aren't even practicing code review. Um, yep. which is kind of crazy to me. So I felt like this wasn't a good opportunity to talk about, yeah, there's a bunch of reasons why you wouldn't want to do it, but there's a whole lot more reasons why you would want to do it. And I personally, like at this point, feel that if I don't get code review, I feel like I'm not done yet. Like I, I feel like you're not done until you write at least some amount of unit tests and uh, and get code review. Yep, totally. Um, anyways, so I already was talking about implying why you would do code review so one of them is get someone else to look at your code i mean there's a lot of times where i've written things 
that were sort of bad assumptions and even kind of past unit tests because I also wrote my unit test from the sort of same point of view. And someone else will point out like, what in the world are you doing here? Um, and it's really important to get another pair of eyes for, for several reasons. One, you just, you can miss stuff. Two, you know, as an engineer, I feel like it's, and I was describing this to someone, is like I feel like good engineers are very, very open about what they do. They don't try to keep secrets. They don't try to keep hidden kind of like methods. They are very open, very sharing. And part of that is yep. that way, and this number sounds bad, but everyone can share in the blame, which is like when something goes wrong, it's not just the person who wrote the code's fault. It's the process's fault. It's the people who reviewed the code. And that sounds like you're trying to look for ways to blame other people, but it's not. It's about it really, some of the stuff we do is almost too important for just one person to be doing. And so really you need to have more sets of eyes on that. And code review is a, is a great way to do that and have a understanding about the process of going from writing code and getting it deployed and shipped. Um, and yeah, and I mean, also people want to do different things. I mean, if you, if you keep this you know chunk of code to yourself, then you have to be its babysitter for as long as you work at that company. Well, some people see that as an advantage, but I... Yeah, we're talking about good good software. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I've been hard-pressed to find a situation where that was truly good. So Yeah, I mean, if... if, uh, Yeah, I mean, there's people who say, oh, you know, it's job security if I'm the only person who knows the code base. Um, It really doesn't work that way. Like, it's pretty easy to rewrite stuff from scratch. It might not be easy, you know, for a person to do it, but for a company, it's pretty easy. Um... And uh, it's much better to, as Patrick said, yeah, be open and and uh, write the best possible code rather than try and optimize for job security. Yeah, and 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 along exactly the same lines is you really want to be able to, you know, it's the you know bus insurance. It's like if someone on your team walks out and on the way home and gets hit by a bus, you want to make sure you know what they're doing. And one of the good ways to do that is through code review because other people on the team will be seeing the code that that person is writing. And, you know, understanding what they're doing uh, also sort of prevents people from just kind of not ever paying attention to what you do. Um, And so make sure that people sort of have visibility into the work you're doing, you know, good or bad, but hopefully the good work that you're doing. And so they can Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, help recommend you when performance reviews come around or whatever. Now, it makes sense. There are some definite caveats. So things where code review can go wrong. Um, so one of them is you can get people on your team who, for one reason or another, uh, you know, like to slow things down or they want to land something, you know, they want to check in some code before you get it in. And so they start to try to be kind of a roadblock. And one of the symptoms of this is people who get really, really nitpicky about very, very small things like, you know, the grammatical structure of your comments or you know, in code review is not the time to decide whether your company is going to use or your team is going to use tabs or spaces. I mean, those code reviews do not work well for those things. Um, those should be decided. I guess we call it side channel or outside of the code review system. Um, code review is also not a good time for like architectural work at like a big level that should also be communicated in an external way. When you go time to have your review, your code review, people should already know sort of like the context of your code. Um, now there may still be needs to critique some of the architectural decisions at like a tactical level in your code, but not, you know, people should know why you sat down to write that code for the most part. Right. Totally. Um, the other thing is, you know, the team has to be diligent about code reviews equally, because if some people are really into it and some people aren't, 
you can end up with the problem of like the very eager person has code out for review, but nobody else is eager about it. And so they don't do the reviews in a timely manner. And then that becomes a problem uh, for various reasons. And it's on the same token, like on some teams I've been on, it's sort of one or two people are very passionate about sort of code cleanliness and code health. And they end up doing sort of the vast majority of the code reviews or have to be a part of all the code reviews. And there's a bunch of other people who don't do it. Um, and I find that to not be good. That that never ends up working well in the long term. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think, uh, yeah, to have a good code review kind of process, you have to have a good auto formatter. Because, yeah, I've seen so many code reviews devolve into like, oh, add a space here, or put a comma here. And, and uh, you know, that ends up wasting like a lot of human time when you could have just written a program and some regexes and, and you know, or used Clang format or something. Um, so, yeah, if you don't have an auto formatter, then then uh, that should be your first priority. Or at <laughs> like least a linter. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, or at least a linter that won't let you... Uh, you know, even start the code review without uh, without passing all the style checks. And then, yeah, as Patrick said, the code review is really, you know, if, if you think that the whole architecture needs to be overhauled, that's a separate task. The code review is really, you know, is there a bug that this person didn't see? Or are they, did they introduce a bad architecture that's going to sort of spiral out of control that, that uh, you know, just it materialized in that code review? But it's not the place to say, oh, you know, I realized you know, maybe we shouldn't have pointers anymore. Like that's, that's not the thing you deal with in a code review. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one, uh, there's many different ways to do code reviews. Um, at the end of the day, you know, they all involve kind of, you know, soliciting feedback and receiving feedback. So, so it's really they parallel sort of the way you communicate. Um, I mean, you could just a simple way is to just zip up your code, email it to someone and they'll email you back some feedback. Um, you could also go in person, like you could have call someone over to your desk and just kind of, and I've actually done this even at companies where we had good tools. Um, if I see that there's some kind of back and forth and it's not really going anywhere, then I'll just go to that person and I'll say, hey, can you just come to my desk and we'll just in person, we'll step through this. Yeah, I do that um, same reason. Like if I feel not, if something's gonna be contentious per se, but like if I think something is gonna, potentially cause a bunch of questions i'll bring people over in advance and sort of you know walk them through and solicit the suggestions in in person yep yeah totally in person is actually um really really useful just this is kind of a side note but if ever you know an email thread let's say goes back and forth between the same two people let's say more than twice then you need to schedule a meeting (laughs) you know (laughs) and the same is true for code reviews like if you say you know, oh, I think it should be .h. And the person says, no, it should be .hpp. Oh, and you say, oh, well, here's a link to Stack Overflow where they say it should be .h. Like at that point, it needs to be done in person because um, those just don't really end well. Um, uh, and then last, they have a ton of different web tools. They're super powerful. This is, this is the recommended way to do 99% of code reviews. Um, I don't have a particular preference. Um, Fabricator is a good one. Uh, Garrett is another one. Um, if you're using GitHub, uh, the private GitHub, or if you're doing an open source project, or using the GitLab, um, uh, or Bitbucket, or any of these tools, um, you know they have often a, a code review tool built into the whatever uh, you know source control tool you're using. Um, so that's that's good as well. Um, at a high level, um, 
the web tools break down into two categories. One is it's basically just an easy, a better way to do the email version. Like you would send someone a link, uh, they could click on the link, they could see sort of a graphical view of your code, they can make comments right there, but it's basically the same as the email. Um, the other way, you know, the GitHub way is where you actually make a merge request. Um, and this sort of combines the code review with the uh, kind of merge itself, all kind of in one step. So someone's approving, you know, the quality of the code and also the fact that this code belongs in this code base right now. Um, and I, I think both are equally good. So uh, I think, you know, there's a hundred ways to skin the cat. Um, but the important thing is, is to do the code reviews. <laughs> so. I will say that having some sort of web tool is enormously helpful. I've been in a couple teams, um, mostly a while ago. I, I think there's become better support for it recently, but where in-person code review used to be the way to do it and everyone was expected to read the code in advance and sort of come with a set of questions or comments. And just like the sheer amount of bookkeeping and lack of desire to go through the code in advance um, really makes it a drag where I really felt the quality of code reviews was much poorer with that approach. Now, as yeah, Jason said, using in person, sense. yeah, using in person to supplement, yeah, definitely. But as like the only way, yeah, I'm not so sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think you know, ninety percent of code reviews should be done, yeah, either email or with one of these web tools. And uh, the web tools are far faster. Most of them are integrated with your source control, so some of them you literally just type in a command, and boom, the code review is done. Like you type in a command with a few people's names. And uh, it does all the work for you. Um, so, you know, part of this is if you're, uh, you know, running your own company or running your own team, you have to, you know, kind of set some guidelines for code reviews. Um, you know, one kind of nice guideline is uh, this idea that everything has to be reviewed. Um, I think this is, this is in general a good strategy. I mean, almost everywhere, I think literally everywhere I've worked at has had this strategy, you know, that you can't just start making changes. Now you can do like an emergency change if let's say it's 2 a.m. and you're, you get paged and you have to fix something right now. Um, but even then, if you do one of these sort of emergency commits that's not reviewed, it should send some kind of email so that someone can review it later. I have been um, in places which didn't have this rule. And I think the problem is making lots of little change. There's sort of a tendency for people to make a bunch of little changes, which they claim are not contentious or don't need review. But then over time, they build up into something that really ought to have been reviewed and sort of flies under the radar because no change was too big. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think also in addition to just code reviews, it's good to have these architectural reviews uh, and things like that. Those are usually done in person. Like if you want to propose kind of a new kind of high level feature and things like that. Um, some some places have this idea called readability. Um, and so this is where, you know, you get somebody on your team or someone in your department who's really, really good at Python, let's say. And he's on the code review, but he's not really there to see if your code is doing what you are tasked to do. He's just there to look at the uh, syntax and look at the, if you're using the language in the right way and things like that. So there's some companies who have that. Um, another thing is, you know, some policies, some companies say, you know, have one person approve. Some say have two people approve. I generally think one person is fine. 
I don't really see why you have to get two people to approve it, but maybe it depends. If some code is really mission critical, then it's good to have, you know, as you add more pairs of eyes, you're going to catch more and more bugs. Well, I've seen requiring two people in a way like a kind of more, like a more senior person working with a more junior person. The more junior person may have more context on that specific thing, but you may want another sort of senior person to approve the change overall but you still want the feedback from the more junior person because they have some contextual awareness or vice versa. Oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, so basically some people have more power than other people or, or a similar way of saying that. Um, yeah, I think uh, another kind of rule is, is uh, um, you try to keep the code reviews relatively small. Um, so if, if, for example, so one thing that's really important, a lot of people know about is you can often, when you're using, let's say Git, you can do Git add dash P and it will let you add part of your changes to a commit. So let's say, for example, I, uh, I implemented a new way to get the index of some item, but then I also took this other part of the code and made it 10 times faster because I had to, because to support the other thing. Well, those are really two different things. They might be tied together, but functionally, they're two different functions. You could have the speed up without having the first thing. And so that's where something like a git um, add dash p or the equivalent, whatever source control you're using, like in Mercurial, it's uh, hg split um, is super useful because you could take part of it. You can make that a code review like, you know, hey, Bob, can you review this speed up? You know, I ran all the tests. They all give the same answer, uh, but it's way faster. Can you look at this? Are there any mistakes? And then, and then you could take the other half and you could give that to someone else or give it to Bob too, but at least as a separate code review. Um, that makes it, it makes it way better to read and, and uh, ma- makes it way more likely you'll get your reviews accepted. Yeah, and there's nothing worse than having someone work for like, uh, like a month or however long, like a long period of time, get a giant code review and then you have some like sort of naming, you know, questions or clarifications or style change. And then the person like the size of the code that they have to go fix when that comment comes in is just preponderous. Uh, yep. On top of it, it's just really daunting to sit down and be like, I have to go through many thousands lines of code for this review. It makes it very hard to sit down and do the review. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other part is, uh, another thing to mention is, and I think we've talked about this before, but if you find a bug in a piece of code, there's extremely high chance there's another bug in that same code. Um, it's just, I don't think there's a name for this. It's some phenomena, but basically, you know, it's sort of like if you have the wrong mindset that created a bug somewhere, you, you created a lot of bugs in that place, almost for sure. And so by having the code reviews be kind of atomic, you know, if, if one code review um, is having some problems, uh, you can really focus on that and you're not blocking all these other code reviews. So right. yeah, that's code reviews in a nutshell. It's it's uh, it sounds very kind of Dilbert esque, right? Um, uh, it sounds like TPS reports from uh, you know Office Space or whatever. But it's it's actually it's super important. It's it's look at it as sort of a way of communicating, um, a way of sort of telling people what you're doing, getting feedback, giving feedback. I've definitely seen. Uh, especially now that they keep coming out with new versions of C++. I definitely see things in the code that I didn't even knew were possible. And so it's made me a better programmer. And uh, uh, it's, it's highly recommended. 
Yeah, I also want to say thank you to all of our listeners and all the people who have been uh, sending us feedback, doing reviews, using our uh, Audible trial or donating on Patreon. Um, We've been getting an enormous amount of support and we just want to say thank you to all of our listeners. Yeah, definitely. Thank you and keep writing in. Um, We try to answer every email and I think we're doing a pretty good job. We're mostly, we, we had a bit of a backlog. We're mostly caught up now. And so, uh, so thank you for all your feedback and, uh, we'll see you next month. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.